In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today's topic is peace. You have put gladness in my heart, says the psalmist. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For it is you, Lord, only who make me dwell in safety. After the struggle of existence, for the day is done, we lay down in peace to be refreshed and rebuilt and restructured. What is peace then? What is this peace? This peace that the world cannot give. What is this peace that is God's gift without which the life of the Son of God cannot be lived in us? These days, again, we might look to peace as the absence of war, or we might look to peace as the presence of war that will provide the absence of the danger that puts people in a worse place than war. Wars sometimes come to put other wars to an end. I can't bring the beginning or the end to that conversation because wars, like all human political endeavors whatsoever, have a way of never really settling anything forever. Boundaries, national boundaries, are pushed around at will, as people in their restless, peaceless quest for more and more, and that more may be different than simply the number of calories they need in a day to make it through the day, are always at odds with one another. And we are not at peace in ourselves, if you like. Now, again, if peace is simply rest, stasis, the absence of war, the absence of struggle, let's push it, the absence of strife, even the work of making one's living where you, in a sense, are at war with all kinds of things within yourself. Then I should just take a deep breath, maybe two or three really deep ones like I was taught to do in the past. We'll sort of breathe a little silent prayer and then carry on with the service. That might be rather nice for you, uh, maybe nicer than listening to me. But I have my work to do, and my work is to look at peace. Peace, says the Lord Jesus. Peace to you. He says it again and over and over again. Peace. Why are you troubled, he says to them. This is the antithesis of peace. Why are you afraid? Why is there fear? Because from fear springs everything else. I'm not a ghost. I'm not here to come and get you and take you to where the ghosts live. I'm not a spirit, whatever that means. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. Brittle bones and tender flesh. Not meant, not intended to be broken and torn or shredded by the dogs of war. Peace, not as the world can give, but tries to get from war peace. Again, I do not say that war and peace are enemies. When the blood of children cries, whimpers, whispers from the ground, it's not enough to turn in silence and walk away and talk. 
For what though do these voices cry? For vindication, maybe. Does that mean revenge, punishment? For the relentless cycle to begin again, only to end in defeat. For where war is involved, there are no victors, only victims. No. For peace, peace to be made by human hearts, but not from the fruit of human hearts, the stuff which dreams are made of, not from all the corn and oil and wine that we can consume in a day. Our peace comes from something else. Christ's peace comes from without. It's a gift. We make it, but we don't earn it. And it's not made of anything that we possess locked up in the thesaurus, the treasure house of our own store of noble and ignoble aspirations, which lead to desperations, which lead to depredations. We may look at the fruit of war, the bitter, broken fruit, and say, it's a shame. But there is no shame in this for the sons of daughters and daughters of this land to risk their lives, put their lives on the line, not sit running drones from somewhere in Florida, put their lives on the line and their boots on the ground for someone else's children and maybe be buried in that foreign land. There is no shame in this. There is no dishonor to be laid to rest in a foreign place so someone else's sons and daughters can have their day of peace. But it's peace that we're trying to share, the gift of peace, sought for, fought for with weapons of war, but so that we can have the absence of war. My brother's a policeman. He also is passionate about the weapons of war. He builds rifles, he can pack his shells, he shoots at targets that I can't even see with the naked eye, they're so far away. He worries about the wind and even the rotation of the earth. But he knows to do the work that he never seeks to do and use that weapon. He needs peace within himself, not anger, not a desire for revenge, peace and calm from beginning to end. This is the difference, then, if you like, between how God uses that peace, not just as the last reservoir, that deep sea that we used to look out at in the West Coast as the sun went down where everything ends up, but as a river, not the sea. Peace like a river, as the song goes, flowing, flowing, flowing. How does peace work like a river? Well, it follows the laws of gravity, as water does. And we'll get to the models of nature and its laws in a minute. Back to the text. We're looking at other law in the text. John says, sin is lawlessness. The text says, hamartia sin estin anomia. Anomia, anomos, the opposite of law. Anomi, if you like. If I want to use that model in our text and integrate peace, which I do, I seek again someone who tried to find the laws by which human beings live together. 
Emile Durkheim is his name. He is the father of the modern social sciences. And in 1899, he wrote a book called Anomi, bringing it from the Bible, Anomi. And he looked at what it was that made human society, which should be ruled by law, coherent, consistent, homogenous, orderly, constantly come apart, come untangled? Why were people dropping away under the pressure of industrialization, becoming disenchanted, not looking for work, for love and joy in their work anymore, not enjoying it, finding distractions to amuse them? Why was society beginning to tear apart in new ways? He found it in this anomia, this inner lawlessness, was a disinvestment as the individual pulled out, ceased to start to internalize the laws of the land and simply sought to be a law unto him or herself. It's no different in the world of Christ. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is many things, but that definition will work for today. Anyone, everyone, sorry, big difference. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, who gets it into their veins as the way we should go, and we all do to an extent, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, chaos. Sin is lawlessness, disorder. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, just order, just peace. He comes not to bring law and order. He comes to give peace, but they must have something in common. Sin, as in lawlessness then, the chaos that leads to emptiness and puts the self at the center again and subjugates everything and everyone to the needs of the strongest. No, not strong at all, the most powerful how different power and strength are. God created from nothing. We're jumping back a little further now in our story. And we're going to look at natural laws, the laws of creation, and how they flow through God's lives and our lives and this world. God created from nothing. But like a Greek tragedy, God starts this world not from nothing, in other words, the text starts not from nothing, but with everything in a kind of sea of chaos. Genesis 1, 2. Tohu vabohu, formless and void. Like water, if you like, sloshing around. You need a form to hold water. And when the form holds the water, the form is full. But when water, energy, cosmic dust, the black hole, whatever it is, is just moving ceaselessly around, brooding, brimming with potential. It's an empty chaos, a prima materia. Nothing can live there. It's waiting to be worked. That's anomia, then. That's lawlessness. Things breaking down within our soul, and our soul seething and seeking restlessly satisfaction. The satisfaction of our hunger, our desire our sense of inner order, to be with God. Not just an absence of the law and order 
the forming and filling then that sets the planet alive, our habitus, our blue-green, sea-green, grass-green planet swirling with life in this inky star-studded cosmos that's still recoiling from the first big blast. Everything inching away from everything else, everything pressing away, looking for more space. We see that same way of living coming into our lives as our lives unceasingly do one thing, protect us from one another, give us more space just to be ourselves, uninterrupted by anyone else. We're a nation of laws. Yes, we are. But those laws, as Catherine Heidelberger so brilliantly seemed together in my mind, tend to make a nation of people who are in more and more lonely in their self-imposed exile from one another with all our rights and freedoms and then become angry and take that anger out in different ways on one another and then go and try to make peace in the world. So what is this peace then? that God gives us? What has it do to do with the life that we have to live? What is the life we seek to live? How does the energy that God gives us to live flow through us in peace? If peace, again, is the end of movement, the repository, the sink of energy, and not its source. I look again at the model of the river, the river of life, the water of life that sustains and nourishes everything. I don't know if we fight over water in this earth, but more wars were fought and lost over water than I dare to recount. And the water that we need, the living water, is water that begins at the place where heaven and earth meet, in the sky, on the tops of the mountains, Mount Hermon, where the snow freezes, the water crystallizes, the warm sun brings it down the slopes. It runs fast and hard, turbulent, crashing and sputtering and foaming. Living water, no, fast-moving water. Water that's pure and clean, but will not sustain life. Living water is almost still. The water that comes down the mountain moves fast. It takes earth with it. It hits the, the floor, the valley floor where life is lived, and it slows down. It begins to meander and cut a channel. And that's where human beings, we must work with it to sustain our lives, the great agricultural revolutions of the Fertile Crescent 9,000 years ago which made the Holy Land such a sought-after place. Those few acres of oasis where the water stopped and the Jordan became a slow, muddy stream. That's where life will grow. Now, how do you monitor the flow? When the water stops flowing altogether, it becomes a stagnant pond. If it moves too fast, it's gone. You have the time between the mountain and the ocean to catch it. It moves at its own pace, and it only moves from higher to lower. So your work of cutting streams for it, cutting the channel for our peace, as the song says, is a work of cutting deeper and deeper and deeper. There are laws here, and the laws guide us. Too much rigor when the law says no and you've built a block 
and the water stops moving. And you see that in the growth of children and of human beings. Too hard a no, and they pull back. Too much yes, whatever. Hey, you want it your way. Hey, I'll give it. Yeah, you got it. You you got it. Too much of that, and the water simply flows over the banks. It's gone. It's seeking its own way down the grade somewhere else. There's nothing you can do with it. We have to live in the middle, controlling that flow of energy and that peace. If we can get it to move at just the right speed and draw it off, we can change the wilderness and the desert back into a garden. But we can't make it happen. We can't lift it up without using up all the energy we've sought to gain from it. So our life needs that flow. For that flow, that inner flow of ours of energy and information that we call life to work, we need that flow to be smooth, peaceful, consistent. And we need to do that from a slow place as well a peaceful, consistent place in our souls, a place where the water almost stops. That's where life begins. Now, the water in Israel flows into a sea, and it's called the Dead Sea. There's no way out. All seas are dead. We have a big one on the planet, and we're doing our best to kill it too. Thank you very much. We think it will live forever. It won't. We'll see. The Dead Sea is there to show us what happens when water stops moving. It waits to evaporate, go back to the top, rain on Mount Hermon, freeze, come back down, the whole cycle starts again. For our life to flow, we have to bring all our lives to flow together, and that's no easy task. So law is needed, regulation is needed. <coughs> regulation of our thoughts and feelings so that we can help each other monitor our flow so that we can share the flow that's given us not just as a tribe of humans feeding off the planet but as a community of those who are given one charge reminded of it again in our reading from Acts Abraham our father we're to take the flow of God's blessing and make sure it gets out to the whole cosmos before we're done. That every human and every animal has the food, the water they need to grow the food to sustain that whole trophic pyramid. That's a big task. We can't speed up the water, we can only slow it down. But we're called to live in that poignant place where we go with the flow as much as we can and yet use that water as much as we can for the good of others. I see the number of times that peace works through our liturgy and our readings. I won't go over them because time too runs with the flow and mine is out. But peace is always being sought in order to be given. God gives us peace, and as we go out the door today, we're going to give that peace to as many as we can. That's the charge we're given, to see the flow of God's life in other beings on earth. 
and to go to other people who do not know him by his name and to expect to see his work already there before we get there. We do not go to cut a living channel to them. We go to help them cut through the channels by which God is already ready to reach them and may be doing so already. And we do it as we head toward our last liturgy, each and every one of us head first, feet out the door, however we come and go, when our last hurrah is requiescat an pace, requiescat an pot in pace, rest in peace. When we see someone off to heaven, their work on earth being done, for better or worse. Peace then rest is the precondition for all our work on earth, and all our work on earth is love. The flow of that energy of love through us, from God, to everyone we can touch. The beginning, not the end. Peace, the signing bonus, not the severance package. The stone floor, if you like, not the vaults above. So when we act out of peace, when we press the red button or the panic button or the send button, when we try, heaven forbid, to stir up anger and fear in the population and then stab out in peace, it's as diabolical as it gets. And we all do it. The church thrives on creating fear. I can't resist it. I've done it just now, if you think about it. Only what we do from that still, slow flow of peace will create anything that will survive this life into the life we come. It's only the work that is done in peace. And peace, remember, comes from above, outside of us, from the mountaintop, from God, that will last and not come tumbling down around our ears the first sign of trouble down here on earth. Everything we do here in haste, even in politics, a patch-up job thrown together by some coalition, even of right-minded people of goodwill, will not last. It might get us through a patch, but it will force us down the wrong path sooner or later, a path that will lead to our undoing and coming back in prayer to the God of peace. As I laid down to rest last night, and I really am done, around 11, watching a weary world, weary from the world news of war and war and war, I missed a note that had been slipped electronically under the door of my iPhone. I had promised to keep vigil all yesterday, but like the disciples, I slept. The note reminded me of what it is that will last. What is the work we do on earth that has any hope of lasting? The labor is hard in this work. So I am told, so I have seen, I've never experienced it. But this work alone, conceived at the place where earth meets heaven and celebrated in the deep, rich valley bottoms of life, that work alone will endure. This is the note, and then I'm done. Welcome to the world. Daniel Scott Oberkirker, born at 7.31 p.m., 9 pounds, 10 ounces, 
20 and 3 quarter inches long. Mama and baby are doing well. Big red heart. End of sermon. On we go. I'm done.